Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. This is Civity Week on News in Context. Civity is an organization working to engage people across community and societal differences, often involving power structures that can leave one group marginalized. Civity is also a concept, a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with those who are different. In this episode, we talk with John Wood Jr., National Ambassador for the organization Braver Angels. Braver Angels also works to build relationships across the divides and differences that fracture Americans. What is Braver Angels trying to do here? Essentially, build out an infrastructure for restoring the spirit of American democracy and the bonds that exist, the relationships that exist between the American people um, in the context of civil society, scaling up an effort uh, to rebuild the bonds of relationships across society and to leverage that into the direction of stabilizing our institutions. And so it's fairly ambitious what it is uh, Braver Angels is after. My role has tended to focus on helping to sort of articulate and conceptualize the, the philosophy behind that mission to speak it out in the out in the wider world and uh, to help sort of craft the narrative and tell the story that goes along with that in terms of who we see ourselves as being as Americans right and left what are the values that tie us you brought up and I think it's no secret that we are in this really I mean I keep saying ugly time but very vitriolic time it's very difficult it seems, to have a conversation with someone who disagrees. I'm curious to know how Braver Angels walks into that space. What are some of the strategies you use to get people to sit down and pull away from that knee jerk that more and more of us are starting to have when we try to discuss this stuff? I guess the way we show up is to sort of take on the role of holding up the bridge in the form of decorum and other particular sorts of uh, structured methods uh, by which Americans are able to sort of um, engage in a dialogue that allows them to see each other across the difference in experience without the conversation or the interaction going off the rails in an ad hominem direction. And so in the context of our workshops, um, we have, first of all, we have a number of different workshops. The, the original one for which we were best known is called a red and blue workshop where we take small groups of folks from the left and from the right and bring them together uh, with the moderator, not to argue or debate, but to speak from personal experience about why we see politics the way we do. And so quite literally marriage counseling applied to Republicans and relationships between Republicans and Democrats. I love that, by the way. That's fantastic. Marriage counseling has applied. To <laughs> Very relevant, uh, you, might, you might imagine. In the context of our live forum events with public figures, if I'm moderating an event, my role is to try and allow each party in the conversation to get the fullness of their point out, to frame the conversation in the context of saying, look, we are each here because we have a common interest in the health of our civil society and the health of democracy. And so part of what we want to do is demonstrate our arguments through a spirit of good faith, right? If I'm participating in a podcast, if my colleague April Lawson and chairing a debate is mediating between a bunch of different uh, speakers simultaneously, in everything we do, we're trying to hold the space for empathy without sacrificing authenticity, right? 
and honesty in terms of where we were coming from. That's how we tend to show up in these conversations. You know, our work at Civity is is aligned in the sense that we call it the conversation before the conversation. Before we dig in, let's see each other's humanity. Let's share stories. Let's, you know, let's make that connection first. And then it's much more difficult to vilify. You know, the 2016 election and the current president, that wasn't the beginning of our separation from each other, right? I mean, this is something that's been building. And that was more of a manifestation or a realization, I think, for a lot of people in the U.S. that, hey, wow, we're really separate. And I think so at the same time that we that we are so separate, the response to Braver Angels, it was at the time Better Angels, right after that election, also really revealed that there's a true and sincere desire among a lot of us or among a great many people in the U.S., to try to solve that and to try to get around it. And and I think that that gives me a little bit of hope. But if you can talk a little bit about that response versus the polarization in the media and, and in that moment in time. Braver Angels, as you said, it was originally Better Angels, um, had its first workshop pretty close to the immediate aftermath of the 2016 election. Uh, it happened, uh, I believe, in South Lebanon, Ohio. Uh, the founders of the organization, David Blankenhorn, uh, Bill Doherty, who is um, the architect of many of our workshops, uh, uh, family therapist uh, by training, uh, professor of psychology, and uh, my colleague David Lapp, they brought together a group of folks on each side, folks who just voted for Trump and who just voted for Clinton. It was a three-day weekend where, you know, through a deliberate design, they tried to see if they could find common ground, and it was so successful that they decided ultimately to sort of take the show on the road and do shorter versions of that same workshop in the South and up and down the East Coast. Better Angels as an organization came out of that. The outpouring of support for what we were doing um, was very much organic. Again, it was sort of a word of mouth sort of thing. I mean, they literally were on a bus traveling through the different states. Uh, NPR, you know, picked up what we were doing, ran a story, and, you know, that sort of turned some heads in our direction. But ever since, you know, many people have gone out of their way to find us. People always come to us with fascinating stories and oftentimes sad stories, you know, of having lost relationships with parents, with children, with friends. And many people come to us out of a need to heal. Many other people come to us because they want to be involved in political conversations, political organizing, just engaging the things that they care about, but they want to find a way to do it that circumvents the, um, the sort of institutionalized nastiness that comes with being active with the parties, oftentimes anyway. That response has been real, but of course it finds itself having to struggle to grow in the context of the massive tsunamis of vitriol, as you, as you said it, that just sort of crash in on us uh, due to the overwhelming, you know, fear and anxiety and, and I think deliberately stoked animosity that the American people are experiencing across the board. So the outpouring has been real, uh, but it has had to survive and grow in the midst of this larger climate um, of hostility. Yeah, you know, and that really resonates with me. My uh, my family and I are, uh, several members of my family and I are on opposite sides of the political spectrum, and there's lots of love there, but we cannot for the life of us have this conversation. And I want to desperately have 
a good conversation with them and it always goes south. And I, I can do this work with people in the world, but I, yeah, I, I think, um, I know I'm not alone and you, you alluded to it. You know, I'm curious about your own, uh, journey toward braver angels. Why did you decide to volunteer and connect with this organization? What, what brought you to it? I come from a family that is, uh, well, so I'm biracial. I come from a family that is, uh, uh, biracial and multicultural and, and ultimately bipartisan. I mean, my, my mother is a Democrat. My father is a Republican. Um, my dad is, is white. He was born in 1950s from the South originally. Uh, my mom is a bit younger, born in the early 60s. She's from inner city Los Angeles. Dad didn't become a Republican until later in life, but he was always sort of the traditionalist. Growing up, I just sort of was conscious of the fact that I lived at the intersection of, you know, different groups, I guess, different identities. And as I got older, I um, became politically active and um, through a series of steps that involved me working with the Obama campaign, falling in love with the message of hope and change, the idea of a post-racial and a post-partisan America, then ultimately sort of studying conservatism in, in hopes of being able to more effectively communicate with Republicans and then eventually realizing that I might have been a bit of a Republican myself <laughs> after I got to know myself a bit more. Ultimately, well, I was a Republican nominee for Congress in Los Angeles in 2014. I ran against uh, Maxine Waters in that election cycle. Um, but I was an odd bird even then because I was a hope and change Republican, if you will. I mean, I, I very much held fast to the things that motivated me to, to, you know, step out in support of Obama's campaign in 2008. And that really sort of, you know, sealed my commitment to being politically, politically active. I, you know, I tried to bring a depolarizing perspective to party politics and didn't really have an easy time with that, particularly when the Trump movement kind of came and asserted itself in the Republican Party. I sort of backed away from the party at that point. But I still wanted to be a force for opening up the space for people to communicate across political and racial uh, lines. And so ultimately, that interest uh, led me to being connected with, uh, with better angels than better angels at the time. And uh, went down and participated in a workshop in San Diego, met David Blankenhorn, and the rest, as they say, is, uh, is, is history. That's an amazing perspective, especially the, the idea of wanting to pull together people across. And it's not just the red-blue line. I think it's really easy to be like, oh, it's all about Democrats, Republicans. But the reality is that so many people identify as independents and can't find their home inside the party spaces. So there are so many other divides. You mentioned also the racial divide. There's the economic divide. There's there's so many different divides um, over so many different things in our country. And I know that Braver Angels is also trying to think about those as well. Yeah, so it's interesting because um, Better Angels was founded to address the left-right divide. But in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd in particular, we've become much more conscientious in engaging the black-white divide and you know racial issues uh, in general, and of course that's always been a theme in in my life uh, as well. Perhaps even more so, you know, to start with than the standard kind of partisan divide. And there is a relationship, of course, between the divisions that exist between us racially and religiously and the partisan divide. You know, these other divisions sort of fold into the partisan divide a bit. But it is important to be able to treat them as distinct um, social dynamics because ultimately they are, even if they are related. The challenge for us in this time has been to build up our competency 
in engaging some of these more particular subdivisions or you know subpolarities within American society. And I think that we've gone an awful long way in accomplishing that, particularly with respect to race issues. And um, yeah, I've sort of found myself occupying a very interesting role in that process, both within the organization and in sort of the larger landscape of, of racial dialogue, because it, it is a difficult thing for people to navigate. You know, part of what I have some gratitude for in my own life experience is that not just in being black and, you know, mixed black and, and, and white in my background, but also having having the backdrop of very different socioeconomic parts of my family behind me. Uh, gives me some sense in terms of, you know, how class realities differentiate us within races as well as between races and um, giving me some perspective and weighing in on these issues that uh, hopefully has been been uh, constructive. I'd love to hear more. And also, if you want to share any anecdotes, basically, about some engagements with people inside the Braver Angels space that that you felt uh, were meaningful or resonant or or worthy of calling out. As we were shifting into engaging, you know, racial issues um, head on in the aftermath of George Floyd, we had a Braver Angels debate on uh, defund the police, whether or not to defund the police. And so to say a little bit about our Braver Angels debate format, it's a parliamentary sort of debate model where we take uh, folks on either side of an issue. They don't have to be, you know, Republican or Democrat necessarily, but we have a resolution on the floor, resolve, defund the police in this case. And people, participants get to give a short speech uh, opposing or agreeing with the resolution on the table, followed by some Q&A from other folks who are participating. But the structure of the debate is such that the chairperson facilitates the back and forth. Uh, questioners address their questions uh, to the chair. Uh, we do not um, allow the speakers to address each other directly. The reason for that is because we want the focus to be on the sharing of experience and not on the battle of personalities and egos. And so we call this a debate, but the spirit of it is one of emphasizing intellectual humility. It's one of emphasizing authenticity and honesty and, and what our true beliefs happen to be. We have to be able to show people a way to engage on political differences in real time as well, in a way that allows us to let the steam out while still you know, being able to engage the topics on the table. In one of our um, first Zoom-based versions of this, we had 200 people in a room. A friend of mine got up and gave a speech about why he is in favor of defunding the police. And he told a story that I hadn't heard him tell before about how he had actually seen a friend of his uh, die at the hands of police officers in basically in our community. He, he and I don't live far apart here in the South Los Angeles area. And uh, he was followed by a woman whose uh, father was a police officer. And she recounted stories of him serving the community and how much people appreciated him as a member of the community and not just somebody who you know commanded fear because he had a gun and a badge, right? And so you have this um, trading of stories that takes place in a way that when it's done right, allows people to empathize more fully with each other and opens up the space for a deeper understanding of some of the nuances involved in the issues themselves, right? But we have all sorts of unlikely friendships that have come out of these interactions, whether in the debates and the workshops, friendships between evangelical activists and LGBT activists, between Muslims and, and evangelical Christians on different sides of, of the political divide. 
Um, and so it makes Braver Angels a pretty remarkable uh, community when you start to <laughs> dig into all the strange bedfellows we make. And I really love that people are finding friendships and relationships and commonality across some of these really socially salient divides and differences. The um, catalyzing relationships that helped sort of cement the image of Better Angels in the in the larger kind of public imagination was between uh, two folks I'm happy to say are friend, friends of mine. One is a man named Greg Smith uh, from Ohio, uh, both of them in Ohio, and the other Kuyar Masashvi. Greg is an evangelical Christian and a former small town police chief. Uh, Kuyar is an immigrant from Iran, also, a, I think, a head of his local Democratic Party uh, Central Committee. At the very first workshop, they had an almost incident between the two of them. He approached Kuyar and he started to say something along the lines of, I have a problem with Islam. He said, and I can tell it to you in four letters, I, S, I. And before he could complete that, uh, Kuyar cut him off and he said, stop. He said, I know what you're going to say. He said, but my religion has been hijacked. And I think he asked him if Greg could relate to the idea of his religion being hijacked by people who don't represent what he believed in. And uh, in fact, that was something that Greg could relate to. And so um, just thinking about people who he felt had, you know, had distorted what the meaning of Christianity actually is. And so they developed a, a bond on that basis, committed to each other to get to know one another's uh, places of worship. And so Kuyar went and visited and participated in the service at Greg's uh, church. And Greg went and visited and observed the service at Kuyar's mosque. Their friendship inspired many others within Braver Angels, and I think beyond but we've got a fair number of stories along those lines, as you can imagine. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with John Wood Jr. of Braver Angels about breaking through divides to build community. Two individuals, one named Glenn Stanton and the other Sheila Clefcorn. But theirs is an unlikely friendship, too. Sheila, she was one of the first people married uh, after gay marriage was legalized in the state of Arizona. Uh, Glenn uh, focused on the family, but they did connect and they formed a friendship that has lasted to this day. I know that this is true for Greg and Kuyar, and I'm sure that it's true for Sheila and Glenn. When you have a friendship like that, particularly if you are a sort of a somewhat politically visible person, um, you have a lot of people in your life who will try and get you to break that relationship, or at the very least, will be very skeptical of you for being willing to, you know, go that far in entertaining the, you know, the dignity and even having an affection and an ongoing rapport with somebody whose political beliefs might be seen as an active threat to, to you or to your community or to the interests uh, of the country uh, in, the, in the eyes of other folks, right? Um, one of the reasons we adopted the name Braver Angels is because we came to realize that, you know, in order to build these relationships between the American people, it requires empathy, but it requires more than empathy. It actually requires courage, you know? There's a real degree of social courage that's necessary if you're going to stand in this gap and say, you know, I think that this person is supporting policies or politicians that could ruin the country, but nevertheless, you know, this person is my neighbor, this person is my friend, my brother, my sister, this is somebody who I'm going to honor uh, as a fellow American and as a fellow human being, and who I'm going to try and reason and work work together with uh, towards creating a better society. That is a very hard thing for some folks to stomach, but that's why standing on courage and bravery in the context of building bridges is just such an important thing for us to do. 
I really respect that. And I'm so glad you brought that up. You know, at Civity, we, we, and I'm sure you say it there too, we talk, it's, it's so important to name things and call it out. And by naming and calling out the fact that bravery and courage are a part of this work is really important. And I can think about in my own life, I mean, I have friends who, you know, I'm progressive or middle of the road slash progressive. And I have friends who are, you know, evangelical, conservative, all across the spectrum. And I love, obviously love them. And for me, there's another layer to, you know, I'm, I'm in an interracial relationship. And so also learning on the more progressive side that um, some of the things that I think are academic or that I think are conceptual, my partner feels very physically or immediately threatened by some of those things. And, and so courage and also the willingness to really just sit back and, or as uh, I don't know if you watch the Bill Burr Saturday Night Live, but to sit back and take, take my talking to and it's really important in in the context we find ourselves in for me to try to navigate those social relationships and threads and try to weave them together while honoring where everyone comes from. The things that may be appealing about just sort of embracing a more kind of tribal polarized um, demeanor is just that it's simpler <laughs> ultimately. I think that many of us have an intuitive sense that a person's politics don't necessarily necessarily define their deeper character, but acting on that conviction out in the world, especially depending on the context in which you as an individual may be operating, uh, is a very difficult thing. And so I think that there's this temptation to sort of stereotype and, and simplify in a way that more or less takes what you consider to be the, you know, the negative impact of a person's politics and use that to define your understanding of them as a human being, fundamentally. It's very easy to slip into that. And in addition to the sort of just honest and organic way in which that attitude might arise just through not understanding how and why it is a person could be that way, could think that way, there are all sorts of artificial sort of structurally reinforced motivations for that thinking uh, in the context of how it is the media operates, how the media kind of benefits from the dividing of the American people, the way in which politicians and political parties increasingly operate, and the way in which they are able to maintain bases of support through essentially ensuring that not enough nuance interferes to get people to kind of think outside of a certain partisan box that might threaten, you know, ownership of a certain constituency, right? I mean, all of these things uh, reinforce on a, you know, sort of a structural level something of an institutional need to keep the American people divided. And so that's why I use the word infrastructure in terms of building up an infrastructure for rehabilitating the relationships of the American people. In addition to all of those external factors you mentioned that are um, seeking to keep things simple, that's how our brains work too. I mean, it's so much easier to look at black and white stuff. It's exhausting sometimes to think about the nuance and to have to grapple with that. And so I think, you know, internally the way our brains work and then of course all of those systems play on that. Institutions and systems, they're such a part of our world and we don't always recognize that. We focus on individuals. We focus on the current president who's so polarizing, but there's a whole system around that. And even if you look at uh, President Trump as a uniquely polarizing uh, political figure, which, you know, he, he is, even if you support him, I think you'd have to concede that. But it's also true, he, he revealed patterns that were already in place. He knew that he would be able to keep the attention of a, a media that had built up its ability to sustain itself commercially by appealing, one, to people's divisions, and two, to just general sensationalism, right? Um, in that context, you know, Trump sort of, I think, 
understood that he was perfectly designed to to keep the public imagination um, enthralled, while also you know drawing very clear lines even within the Republican Party in terms of who the good guys were and who the bad guys were, and really hitting those distinctions very hard. You know, I mean, people of course focus on things that he said about immigrants and, and, and various groups. But I mean, he made enemies out of the Republican establishment, out of the Bushes, out of John McCain, and so on and so forth. I mean, he was drawing lines everywhere he went. Because uh, I think he, he understood that, you know, drawing those lines, identifying who the bad guys were, but then, you know, putting himself forward as, as the hero of the situation. I mean, it's just sort of a simple formula for gathering people uh, around him. That psychology right, is something that I think he just understood as well or better than anybody else and had very few reservations about exploiting. And so that's not so much a condemnation of Donald Trump as it is a recognition of the fact that the system that allows for a, any candidate like that to just go right to the top of the pack is a system that we seriously need to look at and understand, you know, how can we build something that begins to correct for the motivations that are built in here. One of the phrases I saw on your website was patriotic empathy. And empathy is hugely important, but there is some interesting research out there about um, empathy can be a great thing or it can be utilized to divide. So if I have empathy for my group, that means that I have a la- I could have a lack of empathy for, quote, outsiders or, quote, people who are othered. So I, I thought that patriotic empathy phrasing was really interesting and unique. I think that that was a phrase that I may have just said or used off the cuff once that uh, I think maybe my boss sort of grabbed a hold of and said, oh, this is this is good. Let's use this more. The way I define patriotic empathy is to say that your love for your country is demonstrated by your concern for your neighbor or your concern for your fellow American, right? And obviously, you know, regardless of where your fellow American may fall on the political, on the political spectrum. When I think of the utility of empathy, I definitely think of empathy as, you know, it's certainly something that is necessary for in-group relationships, but it, it allows us to progress morally in a way that is of greater and greater benefit to the world when we were able to extend that uh, to the out-group. And of course, it's more challenging to do that a lot of times too. So you've got to do the work, uh, as folks uh, say, of getting to know and understand, you know, the perspective and the experiences of folks who are coming from a different uh, point of view. Brave Range was an increasingly wide range of, of partners who we were going to be working with, uh, including in the aftermath of the election, to put forward organizing containers for people to get involved in if they want to help keep peace in their community in the potential event of violence following a contested election. If someone wanted to get involved with Braver Angels in general, uh, but also in particular in your effort around the post-election um, nonviolence work, how might they do that? Uh, we would ask people to do a couple of things. One, we have a public letter that just released, and there's a, a featured article in USA Today that highlighted this. It's basically a call to America to uh, look past violence, to put aside violence as a means of responding or influencing the upcoming election and to recommit to working alongside one another to uplift the spirit of our democracy and to rebuild the relationships that will allow us to strive towards a more perfect union. We want as many folks in this country as possible to sign that letter to make a statement that this is something that the American people are willing to stand for. When you do so, uh, to take the opportunity too to sign up to host a workshop uh, in your own community, to host a what we call a Hold America Together group, hats for short, right, in your own community 
to help folks, to help your friends, to help your neighbors. Or, by the way, this is also something you can do via Zoom with people who live outside of your geographic area, too. Uh, but to basically uh, give yourself the opportunity with folks that you trust to process what you've just been through in the election, to process how everybody is feeling, and to explore options uh, for getting involved in a constructive, nonviolent way uh, to help keep the peace in the aftermath of, of Election Day. And, and, you know, hopefully that won't be something that's so terribly necessary. Um, but, you know, we've done some recent polling at Brave Rangels um, that show that, you know, over half of Americans think that it might be necessary, right? Better to be prepared and, and not need to be than, than to have it go the other way. Is there anything uh, that I haven't asked you that you'd like to say that you think it's important for people to know? In the midst of all of this um, chaos and perhaps um, cynicism or at least skepticism over the future, what I see around me is the building of a genuine movement of unity in this country. Not unity in terms of uniformity on uh, political issues, but a deeper unity over what values and virtues should bind us as a people. There are people who are seeking that and they are finding each other. And what I think that means is that you will see a renaissance of of people organizing around goodwill in American politics uh, before too long. And what comes from that is, um, you know, hard to say exactly, but it gives me hope, you know, because uh, I see it happening. And I even take this conversation as some evidence in that direction. Thank you so very much. Thank you to my guest, John Wood Jr., National Ambassador for Braver Angels. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.